This is the I Love Success Podcast. I'm Peter Jurukowski, and I have made a vow to myself to help as many people as possible to achieve their dreams. Let's get started. Hey guys, and welcome back to the I Love Success Podcast. First of all, thank you so much for being here with me and this week's guests. I'm honored. I'm grateful. I do this because I have a big, fat, mission to help at least 10 million people in 10 years to go after their dreams. But right now, you are the most important person to me. If you're listening to this, if you're watching this, I hope you bring your energy, that you have a notebook, that you're ready for some type of change. This might be entertaining in some ways, but for me, this is educational. And if you can get one takeaway today, and improve your life, that would mean the world to me. This week's guest is an incredible human being. His name is Jik, Rick Yarosh. He's a husband, a father of two, and a retired U.S. Army sergeant. He's also an expert in hope, which means hold on, possibilities exist. He's toured the country. He's just an inspirational and motivational guy that came back from defeat and we are going to share and honor his story today. So Rick Yarosh, welcome to the I Love Success podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Peter. It's awesome to be here. It's an honor to be here. It's an honor to have you on. So before we dig a little bit deeper into you and, and your story, can you just talk a little bit about Rick as, as a kid? What did you dream about? Like what, what, what made you, you know, uh, full of energy and, and, and excitement as a kid? Uh, I, so I loved sports growing up. Uh, I, I played a lot of different things. I uh, baseball football, basketball, I wrestled, um, I did skiing, uh, cross-country skiing, snowshoeing. I just was out and about doing everything. I lived in the woods half of the time, uh, you know, when, you know, my parents are doing something, they say, go outside, and we would just go outside and do whatever we could. Um, so a lot of time spent outside. You know, I think my big dream when I was young was um, I always wanted to be an officer, uh, a police officer. So I can even remember in school, you know, they're like, I don't remember what grade, maybe third, fourth grade. They said, hey, draw a picture of what you want to be. And I can remember drawing a badge, um, like the old Western Sheriff's badge and a tumbleweed. I can still remember the picture. I can picture it in front of me, like the, the sheriff badge and the tumbleweed, because yeah. that's what a police officer was to me. Uh, that was the dream when I was uh, a little kid. Awesome. And uh, like, how how did this lead up for you to joining the army? Like, what was that story? What Why did you get interested in that? And how how, how did that come about? Yeah, I think, oh, man, I, I got my three big reasons why I joined the military. Um, and one of them is, you know, I think along the way, I kind of did get lost. Um, like in high school, you know, my grades weren't the best. Um, I uh, didn't put nearly as much effort as I should have into my education. And uh, I put a lot of um, effort into my sports but not my education. And, you know, if I was really going to be a police officer, like I said, I wanted to do, I was going to have to go to college and it just wasn't for me um, right away, um, college anyways. So I knew that I needed a different change. I needed a change in my life after I graduated high school. I needed somebody and something to push me. And I knew that the military would give me that. So I didn't even join in the military until about three years after um, I was, uh, I graduated high school, but I knew they would give me the push that I needed in life. And uh, I didn't know if I would make a career out of it. I didn't know how long I would end up doing it because really I thought, you know, okay, four years military, one year uh, college, that's all I would need after four years of the military. And then I would be a state trooper in New York state. That was um, the goal. And that was the plan. So I think along the way, you know, just that goal of being a state trooper, that was always the goal, but yeah. it kind of got changed a little bit because I wasn't putting as much effort as I should have been in uh, school. In school. Yeah. And, and why do you think that was? 
Oh man, um, me. You could go 100. back to yourself and give yourself some advice. Like what, what, what would you have had told yourself? Um, I would have told myself to get it together. Like you're going to regret it. You know, I'm 40 years old today and I look back 22, 23 years ago when I was in school and I think about it and I regret it. I don't have many regrets in my life. And that is certainly one of them. And it's, and the reason I regret it so much is because it's all, it was all me. Like it was my fault that my grades were bad. It wasn't my teacher's fault. It wasn't my parents' fault. It wasn't my friend's fault. It was my fault. Like nobody, um, my parents pushed me. Um, and, you know, even in school, they would send progress reports to the school and say, hey, we want Rick to bring these progress reports home every night and make sure they, I was the only student doing that. And uh, half of the time I would, you know, just say, hey, we had a substitute teacher today. So in the end, you know, it doesn't matter how much effort everyone else is putting in. If you're not putting in any effort, it's not going to change. And um, I guess that's the uh, the advice I would give myself. Now, I don't even know if that would matter to me back then. If I came to myself and said, hey, you're going to regret it. I don't know if I even would have taken that advice. But you know what? It's led me to where I am at in my life today. So even though I do regret it, you know, if I did change it, I certainly wouldn't be speaking to you today. Yeah, yeah. And I but I think the challenge is sometimes we get advice from other people or even sometimes we know ourselves what to do, but for some reason we can't do it. And I'm I've been trying to figure this out. I can't figure it out. Like why do you think that is that we're not ready sometimes to receive what we know is right? Uh, I know how to do so many things right in this world. Yeah. Does that mean I do them all right in this world? No, it doesn't. It's, it's like my, uh, my health. I think about that. I know exactly, exactly how to lose weight. I know exactly how to do it. Doesn't mean I do it. I, I, it's one of my biggest struggles in life. And then all of a sudden I do it. And yeah. out of nowhere, I just feel like this is the right time. I mean, right now is the right time. That's the answer. But I still couldn't start right now. For some reason, there's something in my mind that just keeps me from that. Yeah. And what did you do during those three years uh, between, you know, high school and, and getting into the military? Uh, I had a lot of odd jobs. I, you know, hung out with my buddies a lot. Um, I, I worked in probably seven or eight different restaurants. Uh, I made PVC pipe um, third shift at night and, you know, really, I mean, none of the things I was doing was what I wanted to do forever. That's for sure. I didn't want to do any of that forever. I wanted to do something different. And I knew that if I didn't change the track that I was on, nothing was going to change. I mean, just kind of what I'm saying, like what I was saying before, like you have to make the change yourself to have the change happen. And uh, if I didn't do anything, you know, no matter who's pushing me, it doesn't matter at that point. I had to make a change in my life. So I didn't want to do that the rest of my, I mean, I loved cooking. I loved uh, being in that industry in some way, but that's still not where I wanted to be in 20 years um, from then. So I knew I had to make a change. And um, I actually read an article uh, in the newspaper, our local newspaper, the Press and Sun Bulletin. I was at my grandmother's house on Easter Sunday. And the headline of the um, front page read Sydney grad killed in Iraq. Now, Sydney is a town that's about two towns over from where I live and uh, where I grew up in Windsor, New York. And uh, underneath that headline was the picture of the soldier who was killed in Iraq. And uh, when I saw his picture, I knew him. I, I recognized him. And uh, his name was uh, Isaac Nieves. And Isaac uh, was a wrestler from Sydney. So that's how I knew him. I wrestled for Windsor. He wrestled for Sydney and in wrestling in the small community, like we're from, you just know each other. Yeah. And, uh, after I read the article and I realized what he gave for me, like what he gave for us. And, uh, here I was doing nothing with my life. I needed to make a change at that point. I had to make a change. So the day after I read that article on Monday morning, I went to the recruiter's office and I said, it's time, let's go. And I signed, I signed the papers ready to go. Wow. And what happens after that? Like, uh, uh, you, what's the training like? And then how, when do you actually, when did you actually deploy? 
Yeah. So, you know, back again to the health thing, like my weight, you know, my weight's always been an issue in high school. It was managed because I was an athlete. I was a football player and a wrestler. So I've managed my weight. But once that got over, my weight kind of got out of control, not super out of control, but more than I wanted it to be. And I actually had to lose a bunch of weight before I could even join uh, the army, but I was desperate. I wanted to get in. I needed to get out of the lifestyle that I was in. And I was working my butt off to lose that weight. Um, I was going into the the testing that we had where uh, they had to do a tape test to make sure your body fat was a certain percentage. And they would tape around your, your waist and they would tape around your uh, neck. And the smaller your waist, the better, the bigger your neck, the better. And I would stand with my uh, belly sucked in as hard as I could suck it in. And I'd make my neck as big as I could make it. And uh, they wouldn't tape me. They kept saying, you're not standing naturally. And I'm like, yes, I am. And they're like, no, you're definitely not. Um, (laughs) And they're like, we know your recruiters. We know your recruiters told you to stand like this. I'm like, all right, fine. So I eventually got taped. I failed. Um, and then I, and that's when I decided to lose all that weight because uh, I wanted to go. So I lost the weight, went back, stood the same exact way I stood the first time. And they're like, we're not taping you. Finally, they taped me. And uh, afterwards, I remember it was a Navy um, uh, recruiter or um, someone that worked for the Navy. And he came up, he said, hey, you lost like 20 pounds since the last time you were here just a couple of weeks ago. Why, you passed. Why did you stand like that? And I was like, I have to go. Like, I'm ready to go now. Um, So I was willing to do anything to get in at that point. So I passed and I went to um, Fort Knox, Kentucky, where I did my basic training, which was uh, an interesting place. Uh, I had a hard time there. Physically, not a hard time at all. It wasn't a physical problem. I I could do everything that they asked. Uh, Mentally, it was tough. Um, being surrounded by people I've never met in my life who I didn't really know and uh, had to learn to know, it was really difficult. And, you know, the way that the drill sergeants treated you today, I look at it as they were amazing people, but at the time it was hard, um, that mental breakdown that they gave you. So yeah, basic training in Fort Knox, Kentucky, and then uh, a year in Fort Hood, Texas, where I did training mostly on the Bradley fighting vehicle, which is uh, kind of like a small tank. And uh, then a year later, uh, after being in Fort Hood, I was deployed uh, to Iraq. Okay. And um, can you just walk us through what happened and then how you like you end up in the hospital and, and what what happens from there? Yeah, so I was uh, in um, Iraq for nine months. Um, so September 1st, 2006 is when, uh, the incident happened to me and, uh, nine months into a deployment, we only had three months left of the deployment. I used to make the mistake of telling people I almost made it. And today I, I, I recorrected that I, I did make it. And I'll tell you right now, I made it out better than I even went in. Um, but September 1st, 2006, nine months into that deployment is when my vehicle, my Bradley was, uh, hit with an IED. An IED is an improvised explosive device. It's really just a, a homemade bomb uh, or it was a bomb that was intended for something different, but they buried this one underneath the ground. And uh, when the bomb exploded, it went through the bottom of my vehicle and into the turret where I was sitting. But also in the turret is where they have uh, the fuel tank in the Bradley. So it hit the fuel tank. And uh, I think it carries about 165, 168 gallons, I think, of uh, fuel. So as soon as that hit the fuel tank, I was on fire. The vehicle was on fire. And I knew the first thing that I had to do was I had to get out of the vehicle. It was the only way I would even survive, you know, that day. I couldn't even think about tomorrow or a week or a month. But if I was even going to survive the day, I had to get out of the vehicle. Um, So I climbed out to the top, which normally the hatch above me that I would get in and out of the vehicle with, I closed behind me when I climb in. That day, I didn't close the hatch behind me, thank God, because if I had, there's no way I would have found that lever that was above my head that I would have had to hit. Um, With the chaos of that moment, all that smoke, all that fire, there's no way I would have gotten out. So thankfully, I had left it open. So I climbed through the top. Uh, Once I got to the top of the vehicle, the next thing I had to do was I had to get off of the vehicle. And there was a big problem with that because it was 10 feet to the ground. 
So I was going to have to jump 10 feet, which, you know, that's manageable. Uh, I might hurt myself a little bit, uh, but that wasn't the biggest problem. The biggest problem was the fact that I couldn't see. So I was going to have to make that 10 foot jump blind. Um, I couldn't see because my face was on fire and the fire was covering my eyes, but I knew I had to jump. It didn't matter if I could see. So I jumped, made it to the ground. But when I landed on the ground, I couldn't brace myself for the landing because I couldn't see the ground. So when I landed, I actually broke my leg and uh, I severed an artery in my leg below my knee. And that's why I uh, ended up in, in the amputation of my leg below my knee. So now I'm on the ground. Uh, stop, drop and roll. There it is. Stop, drop and roll. A little fire safety behind us. Yeah. Uh, the, re the reason that's behind me right now is because I can't get rid of it and I don't know how to change the background. That's why I took, background, I, Rick, <laughs> and your it, wife's too. My wife hates it. She <laughs> told me the other day, and I don't know how to get rid of it. I don't even know how I added it on there. But I took that picture at a school um, saying fire safety, stop, drop, and roll, because that's what you do when you're on fire. And yeah. that's what I did that day. I rolled around the ground. I tried to put the fire out. And I mean, I, here's the funnier thing. It doesn't work. <laughs> It doesn't work. Stop, drop, and roll. I think it works if you're like, your shirt is on fire a little bit. It doesn't work if your entire body is engulfed in flames. So I did that, rolled around, couldn't put the fire out. And um, then I did something I regret. It's the biggest regret of my life. Um, and that's because that's when I laid on my back and I just looked up into the sky and I, I gave up. Like I accepted that I would die in that moment. I accepted it because I didn't know what else to do. Stop, drop, and roll didn't work. That's all I was taught to do. And I couldn't stand up and run because my leg was broken. And even if I could run, where was I going to go? My face was on fire. The fire was covering my eyes. I couldn't see. So, again, biggest regret of my life, laying there, looking up into the sky and just accepting that I would die in that moment. Let's talk about acceptance before we move on. Yeah. I, think, I think that's... Like we all go through different stages of our lives where we kind of just want to give up. And, and let's be honest, we, we all do give up at certain times. And then hopefully there's somebody else there, you know, to reach out their hand and help us. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't know. Uh, I'm thinking about this a lot. I'm an, I'm a positive, big energy guy. And sometimes when I see somebody that's sad, I try to help them, but it doesn't always work. And then I realize when, when I'm sad myself, when I'm in a tough position, it doesn't always help because I'm not receptive to it. So can we just talk about acceptance and how, how do we do, how do we get up? Yeah, we have to be open to it. We have to be open to people helping us like you know so when I was on that ground on fire and I gave up like there was nobody standing over me that moment to help me in that moment there was nobody you know unless we're talking about faith and then there was certainly somebody um, because I ended up rolling in one direction eventually after I had given up and I fell into a canal that was there that was full of water and the water put the fire out it saved my life and that's when Two of my buddies eventually found me and, you know, and offered that help. They came down, they carried me out. One of them grabbed my legs, one of them grabbed my arms. They carried me up to the top. Um, but when I got to the top, that's when I realized how bad this was. Yeah. Like I could see how bad my face was burned because honestly, my face, it was hanging from my chin. Like it had come off and it was hanging from my chin. My hands, same thing. They were hanging from my, my uh, fingertips. Like I knew it was bad. And, but that's where, you know, my buddy who had pulled me out of that canal, he was standing over top of me and he was helping me because here it is again, when we are dealing with something really difficult, we need to be open to people helping us. Like yeah. if it's something new that we've never been through before, how are we supposed to expect ourselves to be able to get through it on our own? Yeah. We need help. And, uh, so he was there for me. He offered that help. And, um, I, you know, I asked him a, actually a really silly question in that moment. I said, how bad is it? Uh, and as a good friend would do in that kind of situation, he did lie to me. He said, it's not that bad. I mean, that yeah. wasn't the truth. The truth was it's really bad, Rick, and you might not live. That's the yeah. truth. But that's not what I needed to hear. What I needed to hear was it's not that bad. 
And uh, after he said that, I actually looked back at him and I said, well, at least I'll never be as ugly as you are. That was my response in that moment. Um, and, you know, when I talk to kids, yeah. kids are like, there's no way you said that. And I was like, oh, yeah, I did. <laughs> I mean, I knew that he, it wasn't going to hurt his feelings. I actually believed it would help him. And yeah. I talk about hope. Yeah. I believe it gave him hope because he didn't think I was going to make it with the way I looked and the way I, what I was dealing with. Yeah. But seeing that my sense of humor was still there, maybe it did give him some hope. So I am so grateful that he was there for me that day, standing over me, helping me deal with that situation. Because again, if there's no one else around in that moment, I don't know if I get through any of this. You know, thankfully I had the support and I've had support a lot along the way. Yeah. Thank you for sharing this, Rick. And uh, what happens after? Like, how do you get to the hospital in uh, in the U.S.? Yeah, so first, uh, helicopters came. Uh, they took me and my two buddies who were in the vehicle with me. I was with um, Sergeant Luis Montez and Specialist Andrew Lowe. And um, unfortunately, that helicopter uh, ride to the hospital in Baghdad, uh, that was the last time I ever saw or talked to my really good buddy, Sergeant Luis Montez, ever again. So Sergeant Montez, he was the soldier who was in the turret with me. And um, he ended up getting out of the turret that day and uh, into another canal, but he actually ended up passing away in the hospital uh, seven days later. So September 7th, 2006 is when Sergeant Montez lost his life. So we got to that same hospital together and um, I was in that hospital in San Antonio, Texas. That's where we ended up. And uh, I was in that hospital for six months, half of a year. I spent there. It's amazing that they could get me there in 30 hours. They got me from the battlefield in Iraq to a hospital in San Antonio, Texas in uh, 30 hours, which is an amazing, amazing feat to me. Yes. So I ended up in that hospital. And uh, I'll tell you right now that in that hospital, there were times that I felt just as hopeless as I did that day in Iraq. Um, like the first time I saw my face was and it was actually on accident. Uh, my doctors and my nurses didn't want me to see myself. They uh, they actually covered the only mirror in my room so that I couldn't see myself. And then one day, my mom brought me my laptop and she uh, set it on my lap because I took some pictures in Iraq and I took uh, put put them all on my laptop while I was over there. And um, she raised the cover of my laptop for me, and that's when I saw my face for the first time on accident. It was in the uh, reflection of the the black screen. And I'm telling you right now, when as soon as I saw it, I was like, what's the point? Like, why do I even want to get out of this hospital? Why would I even want to leave here? Because if I leave here, who's ever going to give me opportunity? Who's ever going to give me a chance? Who's ever going to love me? I mean, you know, that's something that men don't want to talk about too often. Loneliness and things like that. Um, I, I was thinking about that. Like, who's going to choose to love me. Um, those were battles that I fought. Now, thankfully, when I was in the hospital, we had amazing people uh, around us, uh, my, myself, you know, around myself, like my parents and my doctors and my nurses and physical therapists, chaplains, all these people who were helping me deal with it. And truly what they were doing for me was they were giving me hope in a time of hopelessness. But in the world of sweethearts and heroes, that's who we call sweethearts. Um, sweethearts are the carriers of hope. They're the people who give hope to other people when they need it the most. And I'm telling you, in that hospital, I needed a lot of it. So six months I spent in the hospital in San Antonio. And how how does that process go, like men mentally? Let's talk about the mental recovery path. Like how how does that work? How, how do you, how do you get better? How do you start, you know, feeling love for yourself again? Yeah. So earlier I said, you know, it's up to me to make the changes in my life. Um, but at this point I needed a lot of help and I was open to it. I was very receptive of the help around me. And, um, you know, thankfully my parents, when I was in that hospital, especially, they didn't allow any negative talk in my room. Even if I was, I was in a coma for the first couple of weeks, 
My parents never allowed any negative talk to be said in my room, even if I couldn't hear. If I was in that coma, they didn't know, but they didn't allow it. Only positive things. If anything negative was to be talked about, it was taken out into the hallway or into an office. So I was surrounded by only positive talk um, in that room. And I just didn't know how to get through that. I mean, again, when you go through something really difficult for the first time, you do need help. I mean, like if it's really difficult, maybe if it's not so difficult, maybe it's something you can get through on your own. But if it's something really difficult, you've never been through, you just need to have the help around you. And, and I did. And um, thankfully, I had the amazing people because I wouldn't be here if it was just up to me, if it was just on my own. And yes, I was strong and I had strength because I wouldn't be here without that. But I also can tell you, I wouldn't be here without the other people in my life. It takes a team sometimes to get through some really difficult things. And it takes talking about things to get through some really difficult things. And I think I'm a product today of the people that are around me that surround me and I surround myself with. Yeah. And Rick, I'm curious, what are some of the, you know, tools or moments where you felt kind of a shift in your, uh, you know, mental, mental state? Yeah, I can tell you one right now. Well, I can tell you there's two big ones that I always think of. Um, one of them was a book I was reading at the time. It was, um, uh, it was about a year after my injury. And uh, it was a, a book by Randy Posh called The Last Lecture. It's a short book. It's one of my favorite reads. It's a very easy read. But Randy, um, he was a, a professor at Carnegie Mellon and he was dying of uh, pancreatic cancer. And he knew he was dying and you know he decided to write a book called The Last Lecture. And uh, there's a part in the book where he is, he said he's, He's sitting at a red light and he's uh, in his car and he's singing and he's dancing to the music that's in the car. And um, he, you know, light turns green and he drives on. And uh, a week later, he runs into somebody at a, a gathering and this lady comes up to him and she says, hey, I saw you the other day in your car and you were singing and you were dancing. And this lady knew that he was dying uh, from pancreatic cancer. And she said to him, she's like, how are you so happy? knowing what you're going through, knowing that you're going to leave fairly soon, like, how are you so happy? And uh, he said that that was the moment he realized that he actually was happy. And he wasn't just putting a smile on for everyone. Like, that's what I believed I was doing for a while in my recovery. I was just smiling because everybody expected me to smile and they drew strength from it. So I would smile for everyone. Um, but when I read that part in the book and he said that he was truly happy, he was smiling. There was nobody else around in that moment, only him. And he was happy. That's when I realized, you know what? I was smiling and I was laughing when no one else was around either. It wasn't just, I was putting on a face for people. I was happy. And that was kind of when I think a big shift in my life, um, happened. But even before that, I had an, a moment where I was in a restaurant, um, you know, three months before that, probably I was in a restaurant and I didn't go out in public that often because of the way I looked. Uh, I had a hard time with um, little kids because, you know, everybody was staring at me, which staring is just a natural thing that we all do. Uh, I'm guilty of it as well. You're guilty of it as well. We all look longer than we should sometimes at certain things because they're things that are new to us and we're trying to figure out what we're seeing, why we're seeing it. That's what we do. It's natural. Uh, we got to be careful about it, but it happens. Um, so that wasn't why I was struggling with things. Um, truly why I was feeling hopeless at that time in my life was little kids. They weren't just staring at me, but it was obvious to me that little kids were terrified of me, like terrified, like hide behind their parents' legs, run away. And um, to the point where I was telling myself, like, just don't go out anymore. Stay home. It's safer there. You don't want to scare children. So just stay home. But I knew I couldn't do that. I've learned in life that the only, maybe not the only, but the best way to become comfortable in life is to become uncomfortable first. And I had to force myself to be uncomfortable. So I was going out in public and I can remember this little girl at a restaurant 
and go up to a table. Um, there's a table across from me that's empty, thankfully, because nobody's sitting there to stare at me, but it wasn't empty for long. A family did sit down. And in that family, there was a, a little girl, five or six, sits on the side of the table where she's facing me. And uh, I can tell that she is um, uh, afraid of me. She's obviously staring at me. I mean, the whole restaurant was staring at me, but I could also tell that she was afraid. She was sitting right next to her grandfather and her grandfather, he saw the same thing that I did. He saw that she was staring at me and he also saw that she was afraid of me. And then he did something that I didn't expect. He actually uh, leaned down close to her and quietly said, go say hi to him. So he wanted his granddaughter to come over and say hello to me and put her in a really uncomfortable situation. Um, but she didn't move. She was too afraid. So she didn't move. But he said it again. He said, go say hi to him. And this time she did start to come over to me. I didn't want her coming all the way over to my table. I knew she was really uncomfortable. I did not want to make it worse. So when she got halfway over as nicely as I could say to her, I said, hey, how you doing? But as soon as I said that first word, as soon as I said that word, hey, she stopped dead in her tracks. Honestly, it was like she saw a monster. I mean, that's the way kids saw me. Um, it was like she saw a monster. And she turned around and she ran back to her grandpa as fast as she could. And I'm like, oh, man, Rick, just, you know what? Get used to it. Deal with it. Figure it out. Like, that's how you get through it. But again, I didn't know how to in that moment. I needed help from other people. I, this is something very new to me. So that little girl, she ran away from me and she got back to her grandpa and she looked at him and she said, Grandpa, he's really nice. He's really nice. And trust me, that's not what I thought she was going to say. And to all of you out there listening, that's not what you thought she was going to say either. I mean, if we thought she would say anything, we think she'd say, oh, Grandpa, he's really scary. But that's not what happened. And that, that moment that I felt hopeless, this is one of the biggest changes in my life. That little girl who was five or six years old, she came over to me. She gave me so much hope. I didn't know what to do with all that hope. She changed my life forever. And what I realized was that hope she gave me, it's the same hope that every single one of us carry with us every day of our life. And we can choose to give it to other people when they need it. And when they need it, we can change their lives forever or even possibly save their lives. I mean, that's the power of hope. But that's also the power that every single one of us in this world carry. That five-year-old little girl gave it to me, and she didn't even know she carried it. If we recognized we carried it, then we could give it to more people, and we could change their lives forever. Those are two of the biggest moments. I have thousands of moments like that. But those are two of the biggest early on in my recovery. Thank you for sharing sharing this. And uh, I'm, I'm speechless. Uh, Rick, so what happens after, you know, you get back, you're still a young guy, you know, there's so much left of life, but your kind of plan uh, changed dramatically. <laughs> what do you do? Like, how do you find a way in your life again? Yeah, my, my plan was literally blown up. My life was blown up. Um, you know, I had an explosion in my life where it took my purpose away. And we talk about um, what you need in the world to live. And we talk about food, shelter, and water. Certainly, that's certainly things that we need to live. But we also do need acceptance in the world. And, you know, that little girl showed me that little bit of acceptance. So it's changed my world. It really did. It didn't change the world. It changed my world. Um, but we also need a purpose in life. We have to have some kind of significance in our life. It's dangerous to not have a purpose or significance in this world. So I lost mine. You know, I was a leader. I was a soldier. I was a football player. I was a wrestler. And all those things were taken. So now who am I? I didn't know. Um, I had some ideas of what I might want to do, but I didn't know how to do them. And so, again, it took you know people in my life to help me get there. Um, I went to an event. I don't know, maybe six or seven months after I got out of the hospital and I went up um, to, or actually I, I'm paranoid about going to this thing even in the first place because it's going to be a bus that's going to pick us up and take us somewhere. And I haven't been on any kind of public transportation since my injury and I'm in a wheelchair and 
I'm terrified that this bus isn't going to have a lift on it. But of course, it's going to have a lift because it's picking me up and a bunch of other guys who are amputees or paraplegics, can't walk, missing limbs. So it will. But I'm still paranoid it won't. So I, I get all prepared. I put like these splints on my hands um, so that I could, if uh, it doesn't have a, uh, a lift, that I could push myself up the stairs if it comes to that. But I'm practicing. So the day comes, the, tr the, the bus comes, and um, crazy enough, there is no lift. And uh, I actually, so I have to push myself up these stairs. So I push myself up the stairs. And but remember, there's a bunch of other people there who can't walk either. And, you know, they weren't preparing. They were expecting a bus with a lift. But I was so paranoid that I was preparing for that. So eventually, they all got on the bus, but they had to be carried on to the bus um you know they had to make a decision whether they either go or you know suck up their pride for a second and get carried on the bus or they just stay home so they got carried on uh, we get to the event the guy felt terrible about what happened and uh the guy that put the event on and uh you know a day later i run into him and he comes up to me and he says hey what do you want to do hmm. like what do you want to do that's what he asked me and uh you know i I want to recover because I was still a disaster at that time. I wanted to recover, but that's not what I told him. I said, I want to be a public speaker. I have no idea why I said something so idiotic. I never wanted to be a public speaker. I am was terrified of public speaking. It was like probably the biggest fear of my life. Like the, my three biggest fears in the world are de the dentist, bees, and public speaking, those three things are terrifying to me. Um, you know, fire, that's not too bad. That's easy compared to those three things. But here I am, like, telling this guy I want to be a public speaker. So he says, okay, you know, we'll, we'll do something about that. And that's just what people say. You know, like, hey, we'll, we'll, we'll help you with that. I didn't believe he actually would. Um, so I go back home, and a week later, I get a call from him. And he says, hey, Rick, uh, I got you a public speaking engagement. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. Like the one guy that I tell I want to be a public speaker to, he actually follows through. Most people don't follow through on what they say they're going to do. And yeah. he does. Um, so I'm terrified. I start preparing for this public speaking engagement. Um, I get ready. I go to the public speaking event and I get up on the stage that I have to hop up on because there's no ramp to get up on the stage. And remember, they're uh, the same guy that book the bus with no lift so no lift on the bus no ramp to the stage he i feel i feel like he just doesn't like disabled people that's kind of what i'm gathering at this point yeah. but i get up there someone brings my um my chair up i sit down and i start talking for about 15 minutes and i don't know what i said to those people i had notes up my sleeve but i forgot i had notes up my sleeve i couldn't hold them with my hands and uh, after 15 minutes, I realized I don't know what I just said to these people. But what I did realize is that every single person in the room was listening to me, every one of them. And at that moment, it didn't matter what I said to them. But I realized if, I, if people were going to listen to me, then I really need to come up with something good to share with them, to help them. And that's where this message of hope came from. And that's where this message of acceptance and significance came from. So again, it took people along the way to help me figure out who I was. I think I had an idea of who I wanted to be, but I wasn't going to get there on my own. I, I hear too many people in this world say that they're self-made. And I'm sure you've heard people say that. And, and you know, I, I hate talking about it because I don't want to offend anyone. I'm not in the game of offending anyone. But there's no one in this world that is self-made. There are people who overcame the odds. Absolutely. But no one in this world did it by themselves. We need other people in our lives to help us get there. You gotta, you can have the idea, you can have the strength, but nobody doesn't have a marketing team or nobody doesn't have a, an employee or something like that to help them along the way. We all need people. So I've just recognized those people in my life and I'm so, so blessed to have had them in my life. Yeah. So that, that was the start of your new career. Let me, let me ask you this. How do you go out, you know, how do you go out and 
deliver a message on the days when you're when you're not feeling it and when you're in your own head and when you're sad about who you are, what you went through and 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 why did this happen to me? Well, I'll tell you right now, early on in my recovery, I didn't do that. And that's when I felt that way. I don't ever feel that way anymore. This is me. Yeah. This is me and there's nothing I can do to change it. And so if I am starting to doubt some things, that's what I think about. Like, you know what? There's no time machines in this world. I cannot go back and change what happened to me. But what I can do is change how I look at what happened to me. Because it was an awful thing that happened. Those first five years of recovery were awful. Uh, a lot of it, that's the way I looked at it. But there were that doesn't mean there weren't amazing things that were going on around me. I was just blind to them. Yeah. Because I wasn't seeing them, because I was encompassed in all of this difficult stuff. So I give myself some leeway on that stuff. But today, I know that what happened to me, even though I didn't want it to happen to me, even though I'm not glad it happened to me, it's still the best thing that ever happened to me because it led to super amazing things in my life. Like, Peter, again, just this opportunity that I'm sitting here with you right now we wouldn't be having this conversation. And I pray and I hope that this conversation will help some of the people that are listening today, but I wouldn't have that opportunity to help them if this didn't happen to me. I wouldn't have met my wife if this didn't happen to me. I wouldn't have my two daughters if this didn't happen to me. So how can I look back at that day and just say, man, that was that's the day my life was ruined because it wasn't. That's the day my life changed. And I would tell you today, that's where my life changed for the better. So when I struggle, I just know, and in any struggle, not just that one, in any struggle, because I still struggle, obviously, we all have difficult things that we deal with in our lives. Yeah. Um, I know when I'm dealing with those things, I am going to eventually find something really awesome that comes out of it. It's, I'm not talking about what you're dealing with. That thing is difficult and that thing doesn't ever feel good. But if you choose to find something good that came out of it, it makes that thing easier to carry around with you, that difficult thing. Yeah. Rick, how did you meet your wife? Um, I always tell people I met her through a mutual friend, uh, a mutual friend named Matt Chacom, a uh, mutual friend named Matt Chacom. And uh, some of the people listening already got it. Uh, there is no mutual friend. I met her on match.com. <laughs> yes. But it's always more fun to say yeah. you met him through a person and yeah. you met online. Um, but how so, was that? Yeah. Let's talk about that. Like how, like, how did you get the courage to create a profile to say, I'm going to start <laughs> meeting people? Like, yeah. I think that's a hurdle a lot of people are struggling with. And uh, yeah. I think loneliness is one of the most difficult things we all struggle with. Oh, yeah so um you know it's funny because uh i always tell people that i date i dated the same way on match that i did in high school which means i didn't approach anyone ever <laughs> even in high school i'm just a baby i am a wimp i don't like rejection i don't want you to say no even though i know you're gonna say yes there's still that slight possibility there's a no so when I started, I opened a match profile and I never checked it. I never got on. I never updated it. And when somebody would message me, I would re message them back. And most of the messages I got came starting with like, um, hey, you know, I, I know who you are. Thank you for your service. Uh, and right there, I was like, eh, OK, this isn't really this isn't really going where I want it to go. I didn't want anyone to choose. Um, to get to know me at that point, just because of what I had gone through. Yeah. So, and, and a lot of people knew that I had gone through something just because of where I live in my area. Um, a lot of people know who I am. It's hard. Yeah. It's hard to miss me when I'm walking out in public. Yeah. So I get a message one day from Amy, who is uh, my wife now. And um, she just starts talking to me. There's no like, thank you for your service. There's no, it, there's no, 
mention of service, I can almost tell that she has no idea what happened to me, even though she sees my profile picture. She has no idea what happened to me and she just chooses to keep talking to me. And then we met and uh, she told me that, you know, a couple of days after we had talked a few times, she talked to her dad and her dad knew who I was, but she had no idea. So she's never looked at me any differently, which is just crazy to me. But yes, again, I am comfortable in my life today because I chose to feel uncomfortable for a little while and deal, go on match and go on eHarmony and try those things out. I wasn't super comfortable to do that, but today I'm comfortable because I chose to be uncomfortable early on. And, uh, you know, I, I, I love where I'm at in my life with my wife and my family and my, my career, but it's because if I never left my house, I would never do anything and people would have understood, but it's not about what other people understand. It's about how you feel. And people would have been like, Rick is, okay. you know what? We understand why Rick doesn't leave his house. He's dealing with a lot with the war and his injuries. But then what was it for people, you know, use the expression, everything happens for a reason. Well, I mean, if you don't do anything about it, then what's the reason? Doesn't just, things don't just happen. You have to make yourself uncomfortable to find out those things that happen for a reason. If I didn't leave my home, I wouldn't be a public speaker. If I didn't leave my home, I wouldn't have met my wife. I wouldn't have my girls. All those things that I'm saying are amazing in my life is because I forced myself to get out and be uncomfortable for a while. Rick, um, how do you, how did you remind yourself to love yourself? I think that's something that we all struggle with as human beings, um, the self-love. Yeah. So I will, uh, this is, this is a, one I've been saying recently that, and it's, it's, it's so true. I am more comfortable in my skin today than I was 17 years ago when I looked like a normal person before my injury. I am more comfortable with the way I look today than I did when I was a normal person. Like that's crazy. I just accept myself more. It's easier to accept myself with the way I look today. I've got no one else to compete with. I can't change the way I look. So I accept the way I look. And then I learn to love the way I look. This is me. And, you know, when I'm talking to kids, I talk about that. Like, you know why I love the way I look? Because this is the way I look. You know why I love who I am? Because this is who I am. Like, that's how you have to look at it. And if it's something that you can change and you don't love something about yourself and it's something that you can change, then make the change. Yeah. But if it's something you can't change, and I really, you know, people say, don't worry about the things that you can't control. I don't at all. Very, very little. The things that I can control, like I told you early on, my health, my weight, that is a struggle in my life because that's something that I can control. Those things that I don't have control over, they don't affect my life in a negative way at all because I don't allow it. I am who I am and I'm proud of who I am and I love who I am because again, it's who I am. Yeah. And how did you get there to that, that level? Um, time, lots of time, um, you know, looking in the mirror and just recognizing that this is what you got. This is what you're dealt. And if you don't accept it, it's not going to be an easy life. If you do accept it, you're going to be able to focus on other things that are really important because honestly, in the end, the way I look isn't that important. I mean, it is to me today because I know that it, um, uh, like I said, it, it gets me an audience. Like people are going to listen to me initially because of the way I look. And then they're hopefully going to listen to me because I have something really important to say. But yeah, it took a lot of time. I can tell you early on, I saw a picture of me um, sitting next to my um, phone. I was talking to my dad who was back up in New York. I was still in San Antonio. He had to go back to work after seven months spending with me. And um, there's a picture of me and my brothers and my mom and dad. And it was before my, my injury. And I broke down. I broke down. I'm telling you, it was probably one of the worst moments in my life 
because I looked at that picture and I didn't see me in that family. Yeah. Like there was somebody else standing there. That wasn't me anymore. But what I realized later on is that's me. Yeah. And now I'm just new and improved. That's it. Um, that's just, I'm a, just a new and improved version of the former, my, of the former me, the way I used to look. But again, it comes down to the fact that I want to be happy. And to be happy, I have to accept the things that um, I de- I'm dealt. I have to accept the way I look. And if I don't, I'm not going to be happy. Happiness, it helps when you have people in your life. There's no doubt about it. But you also have to choose that happiness is something that you want. Thank you for sharing all of this so open-heartedly, Rick. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you and, uh, you know, it gets you thinking about life and um, how how we can go about this this life with grace and with kindness to others and ourselves. I think sometime that I, something that I wanted to touch uh, base with you on is the, the, the whole idea, you know, we're chasing goals, we're chasing success. And sometimes it's almost like we're in a race with others. But the more I learn is that there's no race. We're in this together and we can all win in different, different ways. And we should actually help, help each other out. So what's, what's your take on that? You know, I always think of um, uh, 9-11, when 9-11 happened. And uh, that was one of the reasons I joined the military as well. Um, but it wasn't because I was angry. It was because I saw our country come together and put their arms around each other and say, hey, let's get through this together. And it was awesome to see that. And, uh, you know, now I look at today and I, I feel like we're further apart than I've maybe ever seen in my lifetime. I know that that's not true in the course of history, but in my lifetime, I feel like we're further away. And it's almost like we're waiting for another tragedy to happen. We don't need tragedy to happen to come together. Let's come together before the tragedy happens. Or maybe actually, if we come together, maybe the tragedy doesn't happen at all. Yeah. And we avoid that. But you know what? It's, um, I, I believe that this world, this country, this, the communities that we live in, we all lack trust. And one thing, uh, and one thing I do, and it's sometimes to a fault that I have, I trust people a lot. And, um, and I say it's to a fault, but I, I'm glad that that's my fault, that I trust people too much. And you know what? If you burn the bridge with me, um, it's not going to affect my life negatively. And, you know, maybe I won't trust you in the same way I did before, but I still have trust for that person in a, in a, a different way. I don't lose all trust for somebody. I don't know. So I think trusting people is just so important, having more trust in our lives. And and I know that comes with, you know, being taken advantage of sometimes, but um, I don't know. I, that's something that I think about a lot and I, I've been taken advantage of before, but I still trust so much in this world. And it's just so much easier to trust people. So much easier to trust people. Yeah. I think if you, if you walk around this world, um, you know, holding on to your knowledge or being suspicious, you know, it's not, it's not going to help anybody, not, not yourself either. I look at it, I'm from a martial arts background and I, every time I see the best athletes, they share everything. They're, they're not afraid of giving away their knowledge because they know there's, there's, there's no lack, but the people who, who, who hold on to it is usually they they walk around with this you know backpack of rocks always looking behind their back and see what's going to happen to them uh, mm-hmm. which which makes me sad um i want to kind of segue into the last the last two questions um and then i'll let you go rick i i've had a great time with you here i wish we we could continue and hopefully i'll get the opportunity to to meet you and uh, to give you a hug and to hang out somewhere in the near future. Uh, my, my first question is how, how people that are listening to this now, they want to get to, you know, uh, 
a good part of their life, you know, go after their dreams, but there, there's something holding them back. What, what's your first, first advice for them? Again, back to what I said before it, you're, you're being held back because it's something that's new and it's something that's uncomfortable and you have to force yourself to be into that uncomfortable situation. And maybe it's going to take somebody else to help you get there. But if you're not finding who that person is, then you're never going to get there unless you do it on your own. And you've kind of already said, like, I'm not going to do this on my own because it's really difficult. Okay, so now if you're not going to do it on your own, you need to get some help. And uh, just talking to somebody, finding the right person that might push you out into that uncomfortable area or might even make you feel comfortable to go into that area. Um, so that's one of the biggest things. I am, you know, my, my buddy, Tom uh, Murphy, who I speak with, uh, he is a MMA background. I mean, he pushes me into things that maybe I'm not comfortable doing sometimes, but it makes me better. And then I become comfortable doing those things. So again, you know, we've all heard the saying, surround yourselves with uh, good people. And, uh, and it's true. If you're stuck in a situation, you can't make that next step. Okay. You need somebody to help you make that next step. Find them. Awesome. And for people that are still with us, you know, I think in 2023 to ask for an hour of somebody's time, it's, it's something that I don't take for granted. So if you're still here with us, just want to say thank you so much. Uh, a lot of people ask sometimes, why don't you do shorter, shorter form version? And I don't want to do that because this is, this is for the people that wants to, you know, go deeper on their life. And there's no, there's hacks, but I don't think there's any quick fixes to create, you know, that loving, beautiful life that, you know, you hopefully strive for. And we're with you on that journey. So what's the one thing that people that are, are listening to this show can do right now to get a little bit closer to their, their goals and dreams? Um, one thing that I did was um, when I, I lost 60 pounds before and um, I, uh, I did what I, I would have never failed. There was zero possibility of me failing when I set my goal. And what I did was I wrote a check, $1,000. I wrote a thousand dollar check to an organization called the Westboro Baptist Church. And now some people listening right now know exactly who the Westboro Baptist Church is. And most people are like, oh, you, you were going to make a donation to a church. Well, that's not a bad thing. No, you're right. That wouldn't be a bad thing. And then I wouldn't care if I failed because the church got a thousand dollars. The Westboro Baptist Church, their website is godhatesfags.com. They, they are not a go good organization. Yeah, They're an awful organization. I wrote them a check. I gave it to my friend. He put it in an envelope and, and wrote their um, address on it, put a stamp on it, showed me that, and then hid it from me Oof. until I lost the weight. Mm. There was no way I was going to fail. People were like, how could you take a risk like that? And, and I never even saw it as a risk. They were never going to get my $1,000. Yeah. If you're going to, if you want to accomplish something that's really hard to accomplish, make it so that you cannot fail. <laughs> and Ooh. that one, that was funny to me. I can't, it's not a risk. I'm going to accomplish it. Going to, Ooh, that's good. And I did. And I did. Uh, I love that, Rick. Uh, for people that want to support you to come see you speak, uh, uh, support your mission, where can they learn more about you? Yeah, so sweetheartsandheroes.com. Um, they can find us on there and they can uh, contact us through the website, any of the social media platforms. Uh, you can find us, uh, Sweethearts and Heroes, um, and you can reach out to us. And um, we'd love to have the opportunity. I would love to have the opportunity to come and speak to uh, organizations, schools, uh, sports teams. We really speak to anybody because in the end, uh, a lot of what we talk about is hope. And uh, like you said earlier, that's something we all struggle with at some point in our life, whether it's hopelessness or a lack of hope. So 
that's how you can reach out to us. And, um, you know, I hope I can help. I, I hope I was able to help the people that listen today. That's what I hope. You certainly did. You already helped me, Rick. And uh, I'm grateful that we met. Is there anything else that I forgot to ask you that you do you want to you want to mention before we let you go? I mean, you you didn't ask me how how do I hear with no ears? Yeah, <laughs> just just ask me that, Peter, really quick. Yeah, how do you hear without ears? What? <laughs> uh, that's my favorite question that a fourth grade fifth grade kid can ask me how do you hear with no ears rick what <laughs> i love it thank you for being so gracious and you know being so strong you certainly made my day i'm gonna go back and listen to this show again and again and take some more notes and start you know implementing them in my own life uh first off Thank you so much to all the listeners that are watching this show, that are listening to this show. If you enjoyed it, please share it with somebody that needs to hear this message. I want to help. I want to reach at least 10 million people. I can't do it myself. We are in this together. I don't charge anything for this show, but the value is so tremendous. So please go out and do something with it. I almost wish that we charged a lot so you could see the mm -hmm. tremendous value it has. And before we end, we well, let's do a special thank you to Rick's background. Uh, hopefully you, you'll use that forever for all your Zooms in the future. <laughs> and if you're, if you're listening to this and not watching, you should go on YouTube and check it out. Uh, that's it, my friends. I love you all. Uh, keep, keep fighting for your dreams. Keep going after it. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much. And bye-bye.